Hey there, Tom. We hope you're navigating your Monday with ease. Absolutely. And while you're at it, let's catch you up on the news that matters today. North American venture capitalists saw the European startup scene as a land of opportunity, but they've hit a few bumps along the way. Despite high hopes with success stories like Klarna and Deliveroo lighting up the path, they found that Europe's diversity in language, currency, and business networks adds layers of complexity, and now they face stiff competition from local investors right in their backyard. Uh, I'm Jonathan Martin. And I'm Steve Onsker. Welcome to Tom's News from PocketPod News. Shifting our gaze to Asia, the Asian Development Bank raises an eyebrow at the EU's carbon border adjustment mechanism. It's meant to greenify the EU's supply chain, but could end up sidelining exports from developing countries in Asia. With steel production in India and parts of Western Asia potentially taking a hit, the ADB suggests a collaborative approach to emission reduction could serve better than imposing stringent taxes. And then there's a conundrum brewing among the world's leading energy traders. Companies like Vital and Trafigura are sitting on mountains of cash after a profitable year, but find themselves in a bind. With limited green investment avenues open and record dividends already paid out, deciding where to channel these vast reserves is becoming increasingly challenging. From navigating Europe's diverse startup ecosystem to addressing global environmental policies and solving the cash puzzle in energy trading, stay with us for insights into these unfolding stories. This message is brought to you by PocketPod. Say goodbye to one-size-fits-all podcasts and hello to a fully personalized listening experience with AI-crafted podcast made just for you. Head over to pocketpod.app to join the waitlist. Venture capital investment is always on the lookout for the next big opportunity. And for a while, Europe seemed to be it. Absolutely. Following Spotify's successful IPO, North American venture capitalists rushed to Europe, hoping to find the continent's next unicorn. But it hasn't been all smooth sailing. Indeed. Despite the initial attraction, North American VCs have faced several challenges, from cultural and operational differences across European countries to increased competition within the European VC ecosystem itself. Yet there's still something alluring about Europe's startup scene. With clearer regulations in some sectors and a continued interest from U.S.-based LPs, there seems to be a path forward for those willing to adapt. To navigate through these complexities and opportunities, we're joined by PocketPod News Business and Finance Correspondent Scott Dwyer. Scott, what can North American VCs do to successfully invest in Europe? Well, Jonathan, the key for North American venture capitalists looking to invest in Europe seems to lie in understanding and adapting to the unique landscape of the European market. The initial attraction, largely spurred by high-profile successes like Spotify's IPO, showcased the potential for outsized exits. But as we've seen, simply pouring money into Europe isn't a guaranteed path to success. One of the primary challenges has been cultural and operational differences across countries. Unlike the relatively homogenized U.S. market, Europe is a mosaic of diverse cultures and business practices which can complicate investment strategies. That diversity sounds like a double-edged sword. On one hand, it offers a wide range of opportunities. On the other, it presents significant challenges. How have these challenges affected North American VCs' presence in Europe? Indeed, Jonathan, the challenges have led some notable firms like KOTU and OMERS to exit the region altogether. Moreover, there's been a significant decline in the overall value of European deals involving at least one U.S. investor, 
57% lower in 2023 compared to just a year earlier. This decline underscores not just operational hurdles, but also increased competition within the European VC market itself. Speaking of competition, how has the landscape changed within Europe? Are local investors stepping up? Absolutely. The European VC ecosystem has matured remarkably over recent years. Now, 80% of capital deployed in Europe is actually European, which signifies a strong shift towards local funding sources for early-stage startups. This local dominance is reshaping how deals are made and who gets to make them, a trend highlighted by General Catalyst's merger with La Familia based in Berlin. You mentioned strategic missteps by North American VCs focusing too much on London. Could you elaborate on that? Sure thing. Many North American venture capitalists initially concentrated their efforts almost exclusively in London, arguably because it offered familiarity within an otherwise diverse continent. However, this London-centric approach meant missing out on burgeoning startup hubs across mainland Europe where opportunities were equally ripe but less saturated with competition. Regulatory environments also play a crucial role here, right? Precisely. For sectors like AI and crypto where U.S. regulations remain murky at best, Europe's clearer regulatory frameworks offer an attractive proposition for investment. Firms like Andreessen Horowitz seizing this opportunity by opening offices focused on blockchain and crypto in London exemplify this trend. Despite these numerous challenges you've described, there's still significant interest from U.S.-based limited partners, LPs, correct? That's correct, Jonathan. Success stories continue to bolster confidence among U.S.-based LPs about Europe's potential for generating reliable outcomes, Plural raising its first fund in 2022, with substantial investments from U.S. endowments being a prime example here. In conclusion, while initial excitement may have waned due to various hurdles, from cultural differences to strategic misalignments, the underlying opportunities for North American VCs willing to adapt their strategies remain robust within Europe's diverse ecosystem. Fascinating insights as always, Scott. Thanks for breaking down this complex landscape for us today. My pleasure, Jonathan. Always happy to delve into these intricate topics with you. The European Union's efforts to fight climate change are taking a new shape with the Carbon Border Adjustment Mechanism, or CBAM, but it's sparking some concerns. Right. The Asian Development Bank just put out a report suggesting this mechanism could hit developing countries in Asia the hardest. They're worried about the economic impacts, like reduced exports, especially in industries such as steel production in India. And despite its aim to slash global greenhouse emissions by making foreign suppliers pay a carbon price similar to EU domestic ones, the ADB doubts its effectiveness. They're calling for alternative strategies, like sharing emission reduction technology. It's also worth noting that by 2030, the CBM is expected to generate around 14 billion euros. How this revenue will be used could be crucial for developing countries trying to green their manufacturing processes. To dive deeper into this complex issue and explore what it means for global climate efforts and international trade relations, we've got PocketPod News international political correspondent Alexandra Klein joining us. Alexandra has been following these developments closely. So what can we expect from the CBM and how are countries responding? Well, Jonathan, the European Union's Carbon Border Adjustment Mechanism, or CBAM for short, is stirring quite a bit of controversy and concern, particularly among developing countries in Asia. 
The Asian Development Bank's recent report shed light on some critical aspects of this policy. Essentially, the CBAM is designed to level the playing field between EU domestic producers who are paying for carbon emissions and foreign suppliers who aren't subjected to similar costs. However, the report suggests that the real-world implications might not be as straightforward or as beneficial as intended. Interesting. Can you tell us more about how this could specifically impact developing countries in Asia? Of course. The report points out that regions like Western and Southwestern Asia could see a significant reduction in their exports to the EU due to the additional costs imposed by CBM. Industries such as Indian steel production are particularly at risk. This is because these industries would face higher tariffs under the mechanism due to their carbon-intensive nature. The potential economic impact includes decreased exports because of these higher costs associated with carbon pricing, which could be detrimental for developing economies relying heavily on such exports. That sounds concerning indeed, but what about its primary goal? Is the CBM effective in reducing emissions as it claims? That's one of the more contentious points, Jonathan. Despite its intentions, the ADB believes that CBAM is unlikely to significantly reduce global greenhouse gas emissions. This skepticism comes from its limited scope, covering just six sectors, and concerns that any small reductions in emissions might be offset by increasing carbon-intensive production elsewhere in Asia without a fundamental change in production techniques. So it seems like there's a bit of a gap between intention and potential outcome here. What about revenue? The mechanism is expected to generate quite a bit by 2030, right? Exactly, Jonathan. By 2030, CBAM could raise around 14 billion euros, or about $15.2 billion, which is no small sum. The ADB suggests that these funds should be channeled into providing climate finance for developing countries to help them transition away from carbon-intensive manufacturing processes more smoothly. And what incentives does this mechanism offer to non-EU economies? Well, one key goal of CBAM is indeed to motivate non-EU countries to adopt their own strict climate policies by offering reduced levies for nations that can demonstrate they've applied a similar carbon price on exports. In response, we're seeing movements from major players like India and China, despite their criticisms towards CBAM, considering or expanding measures such as export taxes and ETS expansions. Speaking of criticisms, How have India and China reacted more broadly to this EU policy? Both have been quite vocal in their criticism of CBAM. China has specifically warned against using climate concerns as an excuse for trade protectionism, a sentiment suggesting underlying geopolitical tensions around trade and environmental policy between major global players. It seems like there's a complex web of implications here. Economic impacts on developing countries, questions about effectiveness in emissions reduction, financial potentials through revenue generation, but also geopolitical tensions underlying all this. Absolutely, Jonathan. It's a multifaceted issue with far-reaching implications not just for climate action, but also for international relations and economic equity among nations. It's been incredibly insightful discussing this with you today, Alexandra. Thanks for having me on, Jonathan. Always glad to delve into these critical issues with you. In the world of global energy, a financial conundrum is unfolding. That's right. Leading trading houses like VTOL and Trafigura have found themselves sitting on mountains of cash after reaping record profits. But here's the catch. They're struggling to find lucrative places to park that wealth, especially in the green energy sector, which hasn't been yielding expected returns. And it's not just about where to invest. 
These companies are also reconsidering their financial strategies, moving towards self-financing rather than leaning on bank loans for their operations. With such significant shifts in strategy and the challenges of investing in a sustainable future, it begs the question, what does this mean for the future of global energy markets? To unpack all this, we're joined by PocketPod News visiting business analyst Anthony Byers. Anthony, these energy giants are traditionally known for low cash reserves and high dividends. So what's driving this dramatic shift? Well, Jonathan, the shift is primarily a result of these companies experiencing record profits recently. For instance, VTOL's total equity soared to $26 billion after it paid out $5 billion in dividends from a staggering $15 billion earnings in 2022. Similarly, Trafigure's equity grew almost two and a half times to $16.5 billion over the last four years. This financial boon has left them with a significant dilemma. What to do with their burgeoning cash reserves amidst scarce, lucrative investment opportunities, especially in the green energy sector, which hasn't been yielding promising returns lately. That's quite the financial windfall for these companies. But with such an abundance of cash, why are they hesitant to invest more aggressively in green energy? The hesitance stems from a broader industry skepticism about the current profitability of renewable resources. Despite a global push towards sustainability and green energy, the returns on investments in this sector have been underwhelming in recent years. This skepticism is evident among top trading houses like Vital and Trafigura, which are now grappling with how best to allocate their substantial cash reserves while still adhering to their growth ambitions and sustainability commitments. Interesting perspective there. Now, you mentioned margin calls and shifts in financial strategy earlier. Can you delve into how that's influencing these companies' operations? Absolutely. The surge in gas prices, particularly following reduced supplies from Russia, led to significant margin calls for these trading houses. This situation essentially forced them to keep more cash on hand to cover these calls and prompted a strategic pivot towards self-financing their operations rather than relying heavily on bank loans for derivatives trading as they might have done previously. It's a notable shift that underscores how market volatility can prompt reevaluation of longstanding financial strategies within the sector. And speaking of bank loans, how has this shift affected their relationships with banks? And their reduced reliance on bank borrowing has indeed strained relationships with some financial institutions. Banks have found themselves in an uncomfortable position. They're uneasy when traders max out credit lines during crises, but are also concerned when those lines are underutilized due to increased self-financing by traders. At the peak of margin call crises, we saw traders fully utilizing available credit lines from up to 150 banks, totaling around $50 billion, an event that no doubt left many banks reassessing their exposure and relationship dynamics with these trading giants. Anthony, before we wrap up, any final thoughts on what this all means for the future of energy trading? Jonathan, we're witnessing what might be a transformative phase within the global energy trading sector as these companies navigate through unprecedented levels of cash reserves amid challenging investment landscapes and evolving market conditions. It could herald broader shifts in how they manage finances and strategize for growth amidst uncertainty. The move towards self-sufficiency and cautious investment might not only redefine their business models, but could also influence broader industry trends concerning sustainability investments and financial management strategies. Thanks for those insights, Anthony. Thank you for having me, Jonathan. And that's Tom's News for Monday, February 26, 2024. I'm Jonathan Martin. And I'm Steve Onsker. 
Thank you for listening, Tom. We hope you have a good day and we will see you tomorrow. This podcast was created by PocketPod entirely with AI. If you'd like to learn more, head over to pocketpod.app.